This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of World to Win. Before we start uh, going into it, please uh, like our video and also subscribe to our channel so you're notified uh, whenever we're posting a new video. And of course, you can also listen to this uh, and all of our previous episodes in any podcast platform that uh, takes you fancy. So uh, that's uh, first things to get out of the way. But then I want to say hello to someone I personally haven't seen in so long. What's up, Toya, my co-host? Haven't seen you in so long. I know the summer's like, you know, already started. I haven't seen you in what feels like months. So I'm so glad to be back. Um, what a time to be back to. There's so much going on, so much for us to talk about. Um, I'm sure you've seen the, the devastating news that we're experiencing here in the U.S. where women's rights are just being stripped away right before our eyes. Not that we haven't been warning about this and haven't been talking about it, but it's just almost surreal uh, what's going on here in regards to reproductive rights. Yeah, it's it's honestly frightening. And I think that's something that women all around the world are feeling. I know that I've seen discussions about this uh, among my friends uh, in Israel, Palestine, but also in England, um, that people are just looking to the US and seeing if a country like the US uh, can roll back rights that were won decades ago, what is, what is going to happen uh, for us? And I think it's also important to kind of note that this is like a first in a long list of uh, kind of regress regressive attempts um, that, that uh, could come on board, like uh, uh, gay marriage and loads of other things, which is actually really scary to see what, and I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, a, a big kind of um, example of how we have to continuously fight for our rights. And I, I think the things that we're seeing uh, in the US now, the, the, the protests that you uh, and your section have organized, uh, I think really give this hope that things can change again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we will definitely have our, our next episode beyond this, but it's not even just, you know, things like gay marriage that could be under attack. It's, you know, we have uh, some of these Republicans talking about, you know, resegregating schools and birth control, things that just seem so like ingrained in like, you know, these rights that we could never lose They're you know, up on the table. But, you know, that's not what today's episode is about. Um, but we should definitely have an episode on this very soon. Um, so make sure, like Yara said, you subscribe so you can stay up to date on our analysis. But Yara, what are we talking about today? Uh, yeah, so I think if Roe v. Wade is what everyone's talking about right now, the second thing that everyone's talking about is how expensive everything is. Uh, and I think that we know if you look back even a year from now, I remember I just posted uh, on Facebook like, literally exactly almost to the day uh, a year ago that I got my first dose of the vaccination. Everyone was talking about how everything is going back to normal after uh, the COVID economic crisis, how we're all going to uh, be at a very different place in 2022. Um, and that obviously it was because of the vaccinations, but also the the way that kind of the economy progressed and also the, uh, like the lockdowns ending and all of that. Um, so things, according to bourgeois economists, were looking up. Um, but then it seemed like since then we've had every few weeks 
another blow, another blow, another blow. And I think, you know, we don't really need bourgeois economists to tell us this. I think, I don't know about you, but this is what everyone's talking about in my workplace, you know, how everything's rising in costs, but our wages are staying the same or even technically going down. Uh, and it's just like, it's, it's noticeable. It's beyond just, you know, numbers on the screen. It's noticeable how much more we're paying for everything now. Yeah, I mean, here you are in some places like California, the price of gas for one gallon is almost as high as the federal minimum wage. I mean, it's just insane. Groceries are going up, but it's it's hard to even talk about it with people because, you know, a lot of my coworkers, they're saying, oh, well, it's Biden. You know, the economy wasn't like this with Trump or it's the war in Ukraine. That's the reason that gas prices are so high. So I'm really excited for our guests today to kind of dive into exactly why this is happening with the economy um, and what we can, uh, you know, see in the in the coming future. Yeah, and I think it's 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 you know one of these things that there's so many factors that are going into it. There's obviously the war in Ukraine, the general supply chain issues, labor shortages. Um, there's there's so many factors that are going into. Uh, why this is happening and it's very rare to 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 hear conversations about why it's happening um from a perspective that isn't you know the ruling class trying to tell us that we should just pay more and uh uh, that, that nothing can be done about it. So I'm very excited to introduce uh, two of our guests who are both uh, seasoned guests on world to win First we have uh, Claire from England, Wales and Scotland. How are you doing Claire? Good, thank you. How are you Yara? I'm good. I'm wondering, what have you been up to recently? Well, I've been involved in supporting the strikes which are going on in Britain at the moment. So rail workers have been out on strike. And I think we'll probably come back to this a little bit during this discussion because it's all about the cost of living crisis, workers' wages not keeping pace with inflation and workers organising to try and push back against that. So it's been really important. There's been huge trade union demonstrations, picket lines. We've even had barristers and lawyers out on strike in Britain over the last few days. So it, it feels like things are really hotting up. And yeah, I've been going out with Socialist Alternative, building support for that, visited picket lines, all those things. It's been really exciting here, actually, um, to see also, I think, the uh, the the public response to these strikes as well. I think I, I well you know when I went to work on one of the strike days, everyone in my workplace were really angry that they w- needed to go into the office saying what well, we wanted to support the we wanted to support the, the 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 rail workers and we couldn't because we had to come into work, which I think is a huge shift. So that's going to be really interesting, and I'm really looking forward to hear about more about this. Uh, but we also have uh, another guest that you all know and love, uh, Tom from our US section. How are you doing, Tom? I am not too bad. Yara, how are you? I'm good. Well, so, why have you been involved in the last uh, week, in the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, you've already talked about it in a sense because um, the whole US organization has been very focused um, on preparing for Day X and you know what we expected would happen, but still, it's extremely shocking what did happen when it finally happens. And uh, here in New York, uh, there were 20,000 people out in the streets on Friday. And that was actually a a protest that Socialist Alternative played a key role in organizing. Um, And we emceed it and, you know, so forth. So 
that is extremely important that all of that was very visible. Um, but of course, the question is what to do now. And so I'm involved in a lot of discussions about what the next steps are. Thank you so much, Tom. This sounds it's so important and, and, and you know, it's, it sounds so exciting, even if it's completely frightening uh, to be involved in these uh, demonstrations right now. So, again, really looking forward to maybe hearing a little bit about this uh, at the end of the episode. Um, but I want to start kind of with a question, because I think Toya, what Toya said about uh, the war and all of these things, I think, is a major factor. And, you know, uh, we have we, we we have even had an episode about this uh, relatively recently about the impact of the war on the economy, um, but at the same time, the, like some economists were very quick uh, on the trigger saying that it's going to be temporary and uh, after a few weeks the economy will get back uh, uh, on track. So I was wondering, Claire, can you kind of explain what the impact of the war actually is on the economy and why are we still seeing this impact? Thanks, Yara. So I think, first of all, whenever we're talking about the war, it seems appropriate to recognise that the, the immediate impact that it's having is to cause tremendous suffering, first and foremost, obviously, to the people who are living in the Ukraine or who have had to flee Ukraine. And obviously, we're not going to go into great detail on that, but I do feel like that's important to say, first of all. But obviously, the ramifications go far beyond the very immediate. And I think it's worth revisiting some of what we've discussed previously about the context for the run-up to this war, which I think was this increasing division of the world into two competing economic and political spheres. And we've described this as a new Cold War. Obviously, it's a lot less cold now than it was when we first started talking about it. And that was a really important and is an important historic change from a period that preceded this one of unprecedented globalisation. And that's obviously founded on the inbuilt contradictions of capitalism, um, despite its tendency to want to bring more and more of the world into one global market, it still relies for its rule. The capitalist class still rely for their rule on the on the nation state, and they're unable to really un overcome those limits. And in the in the recent period, particularly driven by the way in which the US has started to see Chinese capitalism as a threat, we've seen this yeah this redivision of the world and um, that was part of what led up to this conflict and in some ways the war can be seen as a, a sort of a proxy for this bigger conflict which is brewing and which is going on across the world uh, and this is just one aspect of that so the war is part you know part of that it's come in that context but it's also itself played a role in accelerating that trend and accelerating it very rapidly and it's got lots of different economic impacts so first of all the literal physical effects of the war on the economy in the Ukraine are very important up to 12 million people as we know have been forced to flee there have been major cities which have been essentially raised to the ground. There's an inability to move goods around. There's been the destruction of crops and, and so on. And those effects in and of themselves are significant. Um, 
obviously people know these statistics, but Ukraine is described as Europe's breadbasket, Asia's breadbasket. It's estimated that before the war, the country, just Ukraine, had the capacity to potentially produce enough food to feed up to half a billion people. So the massive impact that the war will have had on their the ability of Ukraine to produce that kind of grain is massive. Obviously, then you've got to add into that the effects of the sanctions on Russia, which, of course, is a major exporter of oil, of grain, of lots of key commodities. And there's been this huge array of commercial restrictions which have been brought in by Western governments around the world in order to supposedly punish Putin's regime. Of course, in reality, these sanctions are having huge effects primarily actually not on oligarchs and um, members of the ruling party in Russia, but on working class people. Um, and I think the IMF uh, you know, published an article recently which said that sweeping sanctions against Russia have combined with this worldwide supply chain crisis and the wartime disruption of Ukrainian trade to deliver a uniquely powerful economic shock. And the price of oil hit a, a, an eight-year high in March, which followed on immediately from the invasion, and it stayed roughly around that level since. And of course, the impact of all of this uh, is along with the the general ratcheting up of this new cold war, the the com- combination of that with the lockdowns and so on, which are still ongoing um, because of coronavirus, is huge pressure on especially the supply of some of the most basic necessities that people need, so food, fuel, and those kinds of things, and that is contributing to this massive, massive increase in the cost of living, which is a feature all around the world. Yeah, Claire, you you know talked about the destabilization that we're seeing because of this war, and we have a an episode or two um, on the war. If you know you want to get into a little bit more about the effects, and um, you know learning a little bit more about on the ground what they were doing in Russia to try to fight back, please check out some of our previous videos. Um, but what you're saying makes sense. But even before the war, we saw huge supply chain issues, um, especially. Uh, during the pandemic, this was really brought to light when people, um, you know, needed things like masks, or even if we want to talk about the vaccine not being able to get around the world. Um, And so, you know, we don't want to make it seem like before the war, everything was rosy. And I'm not saying that's what you said, Claire, but, you know, like I said earlier, all my coworkers, they're constantly saying it wasn't like this before, but it was, you know, things were building up um, before this war. You know, we saw signs of, of strain and big disruptions in trade, um, in particular trends towards deglobalization, decoupling, reshoring. I'm using some economic terms here, Tom, um, and I'm hoping that you can explain them a little bit more and what these things, um, you know, what they mean and what they say about the world economy and the geopolitical situation right now. Yeah, so I think... Um... The best way to look at this is to think about the period that we call the neoliberal era that basically stretched from the beginning of the 80s, arguably to very close to the present time, but let's say to the uh, beginning of the pandemic, 
or maybe 2008. And that period, um, let's say from 1980 to 2010, uh, was characterized by a huge expansion of world trade. Um, and that's what is commonly associated with this term globalization, that the, that the world economy became you know, an even bigger feature of economic activity. And one of the things that was done was to systematically reduce the barriers to the movement of capital. So you had these uh, free trade agreements like in, the, in North America, the, the NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, that basically was to, you know, to facilitate uh, a greater trade. And that process then meant that production was, quote unquote, offshored uh, or a significant amount of it from uh, the, 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 the rich countries. So that meant that a lot of the goods that were being consumed in uh, the US and Western Europe were then being made in China and then eventually uh, in Southeast Asia and South Asia, you know, every, I mean, obviously, um, you know, every sort of consumer good, um, but also automobiles, you know, were being made in Mexico and in China and so on and so forth. Um, now, deglobalization is a feature of what we're seeing now, and it doesn't mean that, you know, the world economy just stops functioning. But there's many signs that point to how things have radically shifted. Even before the pandemic, there was a slowdown of trade as a part of the, you know, the total economic activity. And, and I think everybody remembers this, like obviously you had Trump you know, accelerating protectionism, imposing tariffs on, on China. But even that wasn't the beginning. It, even under uh, Obama, um, there was an increase in protectionist activity of basically putting up restrictions uh, to trade. And so we are in the midst of a serious shift towards um, something that's more akin to maybe what existed in the 1930s, maybe not quite as extreme as that yet. So when we talk about reshoring, um, and it relates to what Claire was saying about the geopolitical conflict between the US and China, you have to take the US example, they're very focused on the, the um, and it's not just you know one political party, it's the whole establishment and ruling class want to bring back to the US critical sectors of production. So for example, semiconductors, at the moment, a very large part of semiconductor production is in Taiwan. They don't feel that's very safe, you know, of the high-end semiconductors. So there's big plans to, like, you know, expand semiconductor production in the U.S. Um, and what this means is then the breakup of one global supply chain into several regional supply chains that are centered on key countries like China, the U.S., Germany, uh, so reshoring is literally bringing the production back to your own country, which they are going to do or are trying to do with certain critical sectors, or nearshoring it, you know, putting it in a, what they would consider as a more safe place. So in the U.S. context, that'd be Mexico, for example. So I hope that ex explains a bit. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, though, you know, something that a lot of people are talking about right now is the idea of inflation, um, and prices are, you know, just going up and. Uh, everyone has, you know, all of these solutions for how to, you know, fight back on inflation. But what exactly is inflation? How do we explain, um, you know, where it comes from? Well, 
this is a complicated question, and the current inflation actually has a number of causes, and some of them are what uh, Claire was talking about. The, the the war has accelerated it, but then it was already you know rooted in things like supply chain chaos. Um, but in a in a more basic sense, um, I mean one part of what uh, can cause inflation in the capitalist economy is that the money supply uh, grows. So if they're pumping a lot of money into the economy and that is not matching the amount the production of, of goods and services, then you know that money is bound to become worth less, not literally worthless, but worthless. Um, so that will you know inflate prices. Um, the other thing that can happen, is that the supply of goods is not meeting the demand. And we should always stress when we talk about supply and demand, demand is not that you have a need. If you're starving to death, and as many people are facing hunger uh, in the world today due to, you know, like the war in Ukraine, they have no demand. They have a need, a terrible need, but demand is only when you have money to pay for things. Otherwise, you have none. So um, we have both things going on right now and it, it, both features that I was explaining. The money supply issue uh, goes back to the policies that have been implemented in uh, the West since 2008. So when the economy crashed in 2008, their solution to this was to pour trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars into, um, into the markets. And a particular mechanism to do this called quantitative easing, which we should not try to go into. But that's the basic idea. They poured money in. They, they you know, propped up the markets and they let ordinary people suffer. Millions lost in the U.S., lost their homes, their jobs. There was massive austerity. They did nothing for ordinary people, but they got they made sure, as you may recall, like the, that the banks wouldn't collapse. You know, that was the key thing. Um, and so they did save the system through doing this. Um, but the the one consequence was, uh, and in fact, it was like the goal was to, you know, bubbles had burst. They were reflating the bubbles. They were, um, but creating the condition for new crises by, uh, you know, which we're seeing today with things like crypto and property bubbles, you know, being uh, very big again. Then in 2020, you have the pandemic and the solution to the economic crisis that this triggered was a little bit different in that, whereas in 2008, it was strictly a financial crisis that was triggering the whole thing. In 2020, it was also, there was a financial crisis, but there was also this huge collapse of demand because everybody had to stay home. You know, uh, so many people lost their jobs. Um, so they had no money. So you, they had to, what, what they did was partly what they did in 2008, pouring trillions in to the, the, the markets, um, but also putting some money into the, the pockets of ordinary people, far less than they put into big, you know, into, into small businesses and especially big businesses, but that stimulus was also part of it. So pouring all this money in, ultimately, it took a while, but it, it fed into the real economy. You know, in the 2010s, you didn't see it affect the real economy because they were just using this money to, you know, to play in the casino. They weren't using it to invest in, in, in building the economy, but now um, it has seeped through. But the other thing that happened, again, as a result of the 
pandemic, but not just, is the supply chain problems. Um, there was huge demand for goods, but because of lockdowns, which have been referred to in China and other factors, um, the supply was not meeting the demand. So you have all of these things that are contributing to uh, what we're seeing now. Thank you, Tom. I think this was a really good explanation of inflation. I think very clear about a very complicated uh, kind of uh, economic term. But one thing that I think we hear all the time when it comes to inflation, and this this time, I think even more, uh, we saw even like Boris Johnson talking about a, a wage um, a wage price spiral, uh, basically meaning that if uh, wages go up or like if workers demand the wages to go up, then inflation would get even worse because uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, owners will have to raise prices. Um, so I was wondering in that, in the context of what Tom just explained, Claire, can you kind of tell us if that's actually the case? Uh, like if we get higher wages, does that mean that prices will go up anyway, so it wouldn't really matter? Yeah, I think we've been hearing this ad nauseum really in Britain, particularly linked to this historic strike wave and particularly the rail strike that's going on in Britain right now. And workers are being urged by the likes of Boris Johnson, multimillionaires, of course, to show restraint and not to demand higher wages. And the argumentation is that if workers get a pay rise and that will encourage uh, the market to put prices up and companies will pass um, wage rises onto consumers and this will create, as has been said, a wage price spiral and massively compound the problem of inflation. And I think that, first of all, this would have um, an awful lot, um, well, this would have potentially a bit more credibility or would get more of a hearing among ordinary people if wages had actually risen at all over the last periods. And of course, the actual reality is that wages have not been rising. Um, average household disposable income in the UK fell by 1.75% last year. Inflation is estimated to be about 11% now in Britain. And wage rises are nowhere near that figure. So in reality, that means people's pay is not just not rising, it's actually being cut and seriously eroded all of the time. And that's not even something which has just got going. It's part of a long term trend. So if you just take one example, teachers in Britain, if you look at their pay uh, starting from 2007 and compare it to today, they've lost 8%. So in that period, their wages have gone down by, you know, uh, almost, you know, eight by 8%, a huge amount. And wages have been in decline or stagnant for that whole historical period since 2008 and so on. And workers' wages are not a central driver of inflation, as I've said. But actually, even if workers were to be getting pay rises at the moment, so let's say the, the you know some of these strikes are successful. Let's say workers do start to get um, their fair share, that they do start to fight back and are able to uh, rest um, decent pay rises off some of their employers? What will the effect of that be economically? And 
we would say that workers' wages are not a central driver of inflation, even when they are going up, because of the simple fact that when workers get paid, they tend to spend their money and they do that usually quite rapidly after they receive it. And that means that the money that goes to wages tends to be quite rapidly ploughed back into the economy. And if anything, it tends to stimulate more production. So it doesn't have the effect of driving up prices. And of course, even this idea that um, companies can just mechanistically increase prices when they have been forced to pay workers a rise is not, you know, it's not true. One of the effects of the fact that there is a certain degree of competition within a capitalist economies, economy means that it's, it's very difficult for companies to do that. If one company um, deals with a pay rise by putting up prices and another deals with it by uh, reducing their profit margins, then the one which has done so by putting up prices will, uh, you know, face the fact that customers will, you know, choose the one that's cheaper, basically. So it's not as simple for them as just, you know, passing on uh, increased wages to the consumer in the way that it's presented to us. And of course, when it comes to necessities, it's just patently ridiculous the idea that the reason why we're having these massive increases now in fuel prices, food prices and so on is that people are, you know, just gratuitously going on some kind of hedonistic binge and, you know, going back, driving around the, the roundabout several times so that you can go and fill up your car again with fuel or, you know, putting their central heating on in the summer. That isn't what is driving this. It's not the, the fact that people are suddenly wanting because they've got loads of money or cash around to spend it. It's actually not that at all. And I think that the vast majority of workers can see that. Where there is actually um, a lot of money sloshing around, in a sense, has actually been in profit. So if you look at what's happened over the last period, wages have been stagnant. But if uh, you take the example of Britain, up until the end of 2021, so during that period of the pandemic, when actually vast majority of workers took a major pay cut during that period um, or were thrown out of work, had to uh, get by on benefits or welfare. Half of firms in Britain during that time retained or increased their profit mar margins compared to pre-pandemic levels. And if you look at some of the largest non-financial companies, we see that aggregate profits actually surged in that period by over 34%. So, it does relate to those other questions that have already been touched upon of, yeah, huge stimulus, huge liquidity being poured into the economy. But there's also the question of where that went. And it didn't primarily go into the hands of working class people. Um, only a third of it, roughly, in America, I think, um, is thought to have landed up in people's pockets. And huge amounts of it um, went into uh, essentially hoardings of uh, the banks, of big business, of uh, large capitalist companies and so on. And it hasn't been invested in new technology, technique, production and so on. And that's really what's what's going on. Claire, I'm so happy you said it because I swear I'm blue in the face talking about this when people are talking about gas is $5 a gallon, gas is $6 a gallon. Well, how much did ExxonMobil make last year? 
And if you look back five, six years ago, the price of a barrel of oil was more expensive than it is now. So how does that work? You know, it's just, it's mind boggling to see the profits that were made, you know, and at the beginning of the pandemic, when we started World to Win, seems like so long ago, you know, that was one of the things we talked about, how profits were rising, especially among companies like Amazon, for example, who, you know, their workers were keeping the economy, not but keeping the economy going, but keeping people going, delivering groceries, etc. And, you know, those owners, those CEOs, they made so much money during this time. I'm so glad you talked about that, Claire. But I, I want to go a little bit back in history because, you know, they say history repeats itself, whatever, whatever. But this this period that we're in, we have seen this before um, in the 1970s where, um you know, it was a time of, of, of high inflation, but the economy itself wasn't growing. And so, Claire, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happened during that time. And, you know, we know the 1970s to be a really um, kind of historic time period for, um, you know, rights of workers, um, you know, of, of black people, of women. Um, the labor movement was thriving during this time, something that we're seeing a little bit of similarity and like that fighting spirit in this time. So can you talk a little bit about that history and how that can help shape our perspectives for today? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I've noticed that I've been given the 1970s question, but perhaps Tom, who probably remembers it a bit better than me, having been alive at the time, might want to add to it. Tom, she um, just called you out. Okay, go ahead, Claire, <laughs> finish it up. <laughs> Um, but I do hopefully have a few things to say about it nonetheless. So, yeah, um, as we know, the 1970s came really at the end of what had preceded it, which was the post-war boom. And it was a period of acute crisis for capitalism. But as you kind of touched on, Toya, it was also a time when workers in general were well organised around the world. They were well organised industrially. They also in many countries had political organisations, which at least to some extent were forced to represent their interests um, politically, um, although that was something which started to be eroded. And they were able to mount struggles to defend their conditions and to fight attempts to depress wages. And inflation, in some ways at that time, acted as a spur to some of those workers' struggles. Uh, and I think we're actually in some ways seeing a, a potential glimpse of that today where Britain uh, is one example, but it's not just here. We're seeing in the US attempts uh, and some successful attempts at unionization by groups of casualized and low-paid workers in Amazons and Starbucks in Belgium over the last period there's been a massive general strike and yeah from my perspective here we're seeing a growing momentum at this moment in time developing behind this strike wave there is and there is a parallel there I think with the 1970s. And of course, another parallel with the 70s is this attempt by the ruling class to make workers pay for their own crisis. And part of, uh, by I say their own, I mean the ruling class's crisis and the kind of medicine which is being proposed at the moment, which I think we're going to get into in a minute, um, is quite similar in many ways to some of the the, the ideas uh, that were pushed in the 70s. So, for example, this drive to 
put up interest rates, which in a sense is a way of deliberately pushing economies towards recession. The idea is you hike up interest rates, you depress demand, you stop uh, workers having enough money to spend. And that in turn causes the economy to shrink. It increases unemployment. It reduces uh, because of the fact that there are less workers out there looking for jobs. Sorry, there are more workers out there looking for fewer jobs. It reduces the the bargaining power that workers have. So it helps to further depress wages. And this is somehow the medicine for um, inflation. And of course, the, the 1970s were the period which we look back on now as marking something of the beginning for the neoliberal era. And it's important to, you know, look back on that for some of those lessons. But I think also it's important for us to think about the ways in which it's not like the 70s today. So we have been through two decades in which the confidence of workers generally in the capitalist system has been massively undermined and in which socialist ideas have begun to resurge, in which many of the main political and social institutions which capitalism rests on have faced crisis. And so I do think that the scope for the ruling class to use this period to change the balance of class forces in their favour, which is what they attempted to do in the 70s with some, uh, you know, ultimately with some success. Uh, I think that their, you know, their ability to do that in this period is not the same. And in fact, it's possible for this to be a period in which workers are able to reassert their power and to uh, to begin to fight back in an effective way and uh, win decent uh, concessions or, and, and, and obviously win better conditions for themselves. Yeah, I think another thing that we always kind of need to consider is the fact that the ruling class, the capitalist class, is not just, uh, you know, waiting for it to pass uh, as it sometimes seems, but they're obviously scrambling for solutions and trying everything uh, in the uh, in the book to uh, kind of solve this. And it looks like most of the central banks uh, around are now talking about uh, raising in- interest rates. So I was wondering, Tom, can you explain, first of all, what interest rates are and why raising them is perceived as a solution. But also, how is that different to the way in which central banks dealt with these like recurring crises before? Uh, well, I think that, that Claire started to explain this, and just to reiterate, because yeah, I think it's not something that um, certainly in Western countries most of us have experienced in a very long time. We've not had inflation like this in the US or in Western Europe basically in 40 years. Um, so, you know, therefore, in some ways, for most people, it is a new experience. So it was already referred to. I do remember the recessions at the beginning of the 80s, which were vicious recessions that were caused by the, uh, you know, the sharp raising of interest rates. And it was, as Claire said, uh, very deliberate. But the idea is that by raising interest rates, you are raising the cost of borrowing. So for ordinary people, you know, like the cost of buying a house or any major purchase. Um, But it's also the cost of doing business, of expanding your business. So then, you know, you raise interest rates enough, businesses will not expand or take on, you know, new projects. And so that then contributes to, to 
ultimately um, laying people off and, you know, and, and, and can absolutely trigger a recession. Um, so the question about how this differs, well, this kind of goes back to what the neoliberal era was like. It was an era um, basically of low interest rates and low inflation. And it was facilitated by having this globalized economy, all these, uh, you know, cheap goods um, that were flooding in from uh, China and South Asia into the US, Western Europe, and so forth. They were able to keep inflation very low, keep interest rates uh, very low. Um, but basically, this whole project came crashing to a halt in uh, 2008. But in 2008, <clears throat> they were still. As I was explaining earlier, the measures that they took to deal with that, with that financial crisis, what they did was they actually lowered interest rates even further. You know, they went to negative interest rates in a number of countries, which is essentially like saying, please take to, to because these are, you know, the rates for banks. Please take the money. We'll pay you to take the money. Um, so now, um, Again, as Claire said, we have a situation that has some elements that are comparable to the 70s, not every element, but this inflation thing is something they are absolutely um, very worried. You know, many capitalist commentators are very worried about it becoming ingrained, about the expectation of inflation. And then that, you know, you have a period, an extended period of high inflation. Um, I mean, they were debating last year whether this would be a temporary feature that would sort itself out, you know, when the supply chains went back to normal. Well, first of all, they didn't go back to normal. And for a whole set of reasons, it has not, you know, it's not a temporary feature. That's very, very uh, clear. Um, so the calls to take action, you know, from the capitalist side are very clear. And as Claire also pointed out, one of the things about inflation that does uh, spook the capitalists is the fear that it's going to lead to class struggles. As people see, their wages literally shrink in front of them. You know, when they go to the grocery store and do anything, then the motivation to start fighting back is uh, is very real. Um, and already we see, you know, we see a lot of uh, uh, workers who want to fight. Um, not as you know, in many many countries, there have been important strikes. So raising the interest rates now is also, if you look at the financial pages, they'll say it's like the end. It's not just raising the interest rates. It's also stopping these other, you know, um, bond buying programs and whatever. It's the end of the era of easy money, uh, which is this whole period that I was describing from 2008, which got accelerated by the pandemic. So uh, it's a big shift that they are um, undertaking. But the one other thing I want to say uh, is in the neoliberal era, the dominant kind of ideology uh, that was used in dealing with these things was called monetarism. And it was the idea that, well, you know, if, if you have problems uh, in the capitalist economy, you can sort it out by basically, you know, you can stop printing money. That was kind of a very shorthand explanation. But then we have people who are Keynesians and today, um, there's folks who who, uh, who who adhere to what's called modern monetary theory, and their proposition is the opposite: that we should basically keep spending money, um, spend it on social programs and so forth. That sounds good, um, but their view is that somehow this will prevent crises. 
And the, so the monetarists who are generally right wing, the MMT people who are more left wing, but they both are looking for a way to prevent capitalism you know, from having profound crises. But actually, it's not possible. Capitalism is a boom bust system. And every time, you know, they get to a point where there's a big period of growth or whatever, people start saying, well, see, now we've overcome this. It hasn't been overcome. And every time you get into a deep crisis, again, as Claire said, the solution is basically the same. Make the working class pay for the crisis of the system. That's what they did in 2008, but not through raising interest rates. But that's what they're going to do this time through raising interest rates. They're going to push the economy over the edge. So, Tom, like the raising of the interest rate, I feel like this is something that people understand and talk about. You know, if I want to buy a house now, it's going to be so much more expensive. If I want to refinance my house, I can't do it. I'm going to owe more than I took my mortgage out for, et cetera. But what are the effects of raising interest rates globally? We've been talking a lot about the conditions in the U.S. and in Europe, but globally, what effect will that have? Is a recession inevitable? Um. Well, maybe not in every country, but just to cite one thing, the IMF is predicting already economic slowdowns in 143 different uh, countries. Um, so, you know, inflation is rampant and it's much worse, you know, in many, many countries uh, in the poorer parts of the world than it is even in Western Europe and the US. And so what that, of course, means for ordinary people uh, who, you know, in, in those countries who whose budgets are even more about buying food, if if it's inflation and food, then you know their ability to even feed themselves is becoming more and more constricted. So yes, economic slowdowns, huge problems already, even if food is available in buying food because it's become uh, more expensive. But then on top of that um, is the, the effect of raising interest rates in the US and in Western Europe on the debt crisis. So um, I think the figure is $5 trillion uh, that is now basically um, owed by poor countries just to private uh, companies. You know, um, it's not just to the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. So many countries are, you know, drowning in debt. And then if and a lot of that debt is denominated in dollars. So if you raise interest rates in the US, then that's gonna make it more expensive for those countries to repay those debts. And that's a catastrophe. You know, so that literally means then they wind up cutting social services and other forms of support for their own population. So where we are heading globally in many countries, you can already see it in Sri Lanka, you know, I think yesterday or the day before, they literally banned um, any sale of petrol for private use. So basically, nobody can drive their car now in Sri Lanka. You know, it's just a it's a collapse in that country, uh, and it's a result of corruption, but it's also the result of the debt and inflation, the whole thing combined. So Sri Lanka could be the story in many other countries, and let's not forget what happened ten years ago when price of food went up sky high that then triggered the uh the rebellions in north africa and middle east that we call the arab revolution i think there's so many kind of different 
uh, ways to handle these crises that you just talked about, Tom. And I think that it's also so confusing because there's so many like terms that are maybe a bit difficult to understand, especially when we keep on hearing them all the time, um, but in different uh, in different contexts and different uh, uh, kind of situations of economic crises. And it kind of seems like uh, what Marxists have been saying uh, for hundreds of years now that capitalism is a system of crisis is kind of showing itself more and more in the last few years, especially um, in the last few decades generally as well. Um, so we see how, like, like you both have kind of mentioned, the capitalist class has different solutions uh, and they're all kind of fighting over what the best solution is going to be and there's no agreement but the only agreement is that it's going to be within the confines of the capitalist system but if the system is so crisis prone then like is there going to be a real solution within capitalism and i was wondering Claire, can you can you kind of tell us what we as marxists see as a solution to the economic crisis now and generally to economic crises that uh, we're seeing over and over again on the capitalism. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, our starting point, which really is the same and it's always like a slogan that we use whenever there's a crisis for capitalism, is the idea that workers must not be made to pay. And, you know, I think that that's an idea which we're going to keep coming back to over the next period as these demands for workers to accept falling wages and higher interest rates and all of these different squeezes on their living standards, on their ability to just get the basic things that they need in life continue. And actually, beyond just saying that workers shouldn't have to have their living standard standards eroded over the next few years well we say that working class people as was talked about you know just a few months ago politicians were still eager to talk about how brilliant the health workers and logistics workers and all of those kinds of people had been during the pandemic um, the key workers who got us through how important their role was uh, within society and even used slogans like build back better, um, pointing towards the idea that there'll be, you know, a brighter future coming out of the pandemic. Well, you know, we always knew that that was a lie coming from those capitalist, pro-capitalist politicians. But we do think that working class people deserve a decent future. And there's clearly the basis for that. We live in a world which is one in which there's stupendous wealth, all concentrated in the hands of a tiny minority of people. Um, in fact, you have you know greater polarization of wealth in the world today than there's been probably at any other point in the whole of human history. It's really staggering. And we think that it's the capitalist system, the chaotic capitalist system, which is ultimately to, be, to, to blame for this. And it's this system which is destroying the planet, uh, that's uh, driving us towards uh, a future of poverty, of famine. All of these things are a reality for people, for millions of people around the world. And there is a force in society, we say, that offers a way out. And that is the united multiracial, multi-gendered, international working class. That's because of the role that workers play in society, which I touched on talking about the pandemic. They 
make goods, provide services, distribute things all over the world. They keep society running. And when they stand together and unite, they can have huge, huge power. And we're seeing that with some of these movements that are taking place and strikes where workers are able to bring countries to a standstill in some cases based on their collective action. And that points to the fact that actually um, the kind of speculators, the gamblers, the, the profiteers, the capitalists, their role in society is not really a useful one. It's not necessary. Um, it's workers who produce society's wealth. And socialism is a, quite a simple idea, really. It's the idea that working class people can run society themselves, that the, the working class should be the next ruling class, in a sense. Um, and we stand for the uh, bringing into public ownership of the big monopolies that currently dominate the economy around the world and putting the economy in the hands of working class people under democratic working class control, controlling the workplace, control uh, at local, um, at regional and national and ultimately an international level by working class people, a democratic plan to produce things. And on that basis, um, a socialist basis, it should be possible to meet people's needs without destroying the planet um, and without bringing um, you know, humanity to the brink of uh, you know, destruction and so on as we're seeing at the moment. So we stand for socialist change. And I think that that's a demand which is going to increasingly get an echo amongst working class people um, over the next period as they face that struggle um, to survive that we're all in. Thank you so much, both Claire and Tom, for coming on our show today. It's great to see you again and to talk about this really important topic. And we were able to kind of dive through and debunk a lot of uh, what we see in, in the corporate media. So thanks. And hopefully you're on again real soon. Wow, this was a lot to take in. I'm, but I'm always glad to have these economic episodes. I feel like they always, I always leave with, uh, you know, a lot more understanding of, uh, uh, of the situation. But Toya, it's the first time I have you here in over a month and I have loads of questions to ask you about uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, so obviously, as everyone could probably guess, our, our, our shout out of the week this week is going to be uh, uh, to send solidarity to uh, uh, the US uh, with the attacks on bodily autonomy. But as we also talked about a little bit before, it's not just, you know, uh, the attacks on abortion rights. Uh, it can uh, grow and manifest in uh, many, many other ways. Uh, and, you know, I think we, we it's, it's very clear that we're all sending huge solidarity uh, to everyone in the US, but especially uh, to the members that we have in the US who are now fighting this. And we are very uh, lucky to have Toya here um, uh, to ask you, so what is actually uh, been going on? What, why is the fight back uh, like? What, what, what are you doing? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, we're gonna get into this in another episode, but this is a huge precedent that has been set. It's the first time ever that a constitutional right that had been given to us by the Supreme Court is taken away, which in a sense kind of makes you think, well, what's what's the point of this court then if they can just make something and take it away? Um, but it's, you know, 50 years um, of 
you know, pregnant people being able to make a choice about their own bodies. And so now we're seeing, uh, you know, somewhere around 20 something states are not going to be able to to receive uh, abortions. Oftentimes it's life-saving care. And so Socialist Alternative, we've been talking about this for a while, been preparing for what we called Day X, which was the day that they decided to take away our rights. Um, we immediately hit the streets um, across the entire country. Tens of thousands of people came out. As Tom mentioned earlier, in New York City, there were 20,000 people. AOC was even tweeting about our event. It was huge. Um, and it was a really exciting time. Hundreds of people have come, you know, wanting to join Socialist Alternative. And so if you're watching this in the U.S. and you want to join, you are not alone. There are so many people that want to join our organization. Um, and, you know, the protests have had very different characters. You know, in the state that I live in, abortion probably is not going to be taken away anytime soon. But, you know, we have members that live in Texas. And that's one of the first states that it's taken away, even uh, all abortions, doesn't matter, six weeks, nothing, all abortions taken away. Um, we held this amazing protest where actually, uh, you know, an establishment politician, uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke, uh, came to speak and uh, basically, we were chanting at him um, because, you know, the Democrats have done nothing to actually codify this into law. They've had 50 years to make this an actual law and they didn't. Um, and, you know, the chants went on so much that he couldn't even speak. He had to get taken off stage. Um, it was amazing. Just the energy um, to fight back against this is insane. Yeah, I think... What amazed me the most, like obviously beyond the incredible demos that uh, that have been going on, I think is kind of like the, the clear kind of working class solidarity that people have. Like I've seen so many posts on social media of people saying, if you need an abortion, come and I'll host you because I'm in a state that will still have abortion. And, and it's just so incredible to see kind of this solidarity that exists and how we're taking it a step forward with fighting back against it and you know the things about the democratic party i think it's very clear to so many people that like especially now that they've been talking about codifying roe v wade for so long and they haven't done it even in you know presidencies that r relied on codifying roe v wade as like the main kind of uh election uh, priority or whatever uh, still hasn't happened and now we're seeing kind of uh, obviously even if it was codified it would be able to, to be taken away but now uh, it's it's because it wasn't codified it was so much easier and now there's this uh, insane mess of so many of these laws that can be revoked so uh, it's so crazy uh, uh, to see that that's happening and I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about kind of the demands that Socialist Alternative is putting forward in these demos, because I'm sure you're not only uh, chanting away uh, Democrats <laughs> off the stage. So fun, though. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the reality is we just lost, uh, you know, a basic right, you know, bodily autonomy under a Democratic president, under the first uh, woman vice president. You know, uh, we have um, 
so much to say about that and how the Democrats are just lacking. And so some of the demands, you know, especially in places like where I live, where we can't call on the governor to change it to the state legislature because, you know, in many states, um, like in Seattle, Washington, with our elected official Shama Sawant, um, you know, we're putting forward things like not allowing um, extradition from other states. So for example, if a doctor performs an abortion in Texas and flees to a different state, you know, not allowing an arrest to happen, things like that are happening um, already, but we're calling on Biden uh, to actually take action. So in states where abortion um, is now illegal, you know, um, giving access to abortion on federal land, uh, you know, that is run by the federal government so that women are still able and pregnant people are still able to to get that life-saving care um, or you know their choice of, of health care. Um, and we're also calling um, on Biden to um, get rid of the Hyde Amendment. And what the Hyde Amendment says is you can't use federal funding to get an abortion. And so if you are on you know, some sort of uh, federal program, you know, to receive healthcare, you can't use it to get an abortion, which is, you know, you should be allowed to use your healthcare in the way that, that you uh, want to use it. Um, and so, you know, demands like this, putting them uh, on the Democrats are, are ways that we can get into conversations with people about how we can actually fight back. So we don't have this defeatist mode, which many people are now feeling. Yeah, I think this is so important. I, I think, Obviously, we, you know, uh, people can also go back and view uh, the latest episode that we had on abortion rights, and we've had a few actually. Um, so obviously, there's uh, like this overall kind of uh, approach that we take to it, but I think it's so important to also have these practical solutions that we can have right now because this is a crisis that a lot of people are going to feel uh, personally. Uh, and it's, it's, it's so amazing to see kind of the fight back and the solidarity and the concrete demands that we're putting forward. And of course, all of that as a stage towards finding, uh, uh, f fighting for a world that we, in which we will not need to always be fighting for our rights. We can, uh, you know, li li live for the benefit of all of us. Uh, uh, and that is obviously socialism. So. Thank you so much uh, for watching and thank you for Tom and Claire for being with us and obviously Toya for telling us about this. Uh, I was really looking forward to it actually. And we are probably going to have a, a specific episode about Roe v. Wade uh, next week. So please tune in and make sure that you click the bell button on uh, YouTube as well so that you're notified when we upload it. Um, but thank you so much and see you uh, soon. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!